Greetings everyone and welcome to Elephant TV. My name is Joe Kobothi. Today I'll be speaking to Gautam Bhatia, an Indian constitutional lawyer, currently finishing his PhD at Oxford University at the UK. Welcome Mr. Bhatia to the Elephant. Thank you. Great. I'd just to kick at this conversation of uh, you recently penned, penned a three-part analysis on the recent, the recent ruling by uh, the Court of Appeal, the appeal around the around the BBI BBI judgment. Why, why do you think these three uh, these three parts were very important? Uh, one for for legal scholarship, but two, which I think in my view is, is a more important one for Kenyans, because this is a living document for their for their livelihoods and for their existence. So I think I think I'll, I'll answer the second part of your your question first, which is you know the, the importance of these three um, sets of issues in in very practical terms. Right. Uh, now I think one thing that uh, a constitution does is that it it creates a scheme for the distribution allocation of power, um, right. and you know, classical constitutional theory always envisages three branches judiciary, legislature, executive, um, and the kind of political system a constitution sets up allocates power between these three branches. Right. Um, and when you have and any constitutional text has silences, gaps, and ambiguities, um, and so whenever you have a, a case like the BVI case, a lot of of the arguments involved interpreting those gaps and silences um, in a way that will alter or redefine the balance of power that that constitution creates. Um, and I think that with respect to the basic structure doctrine, public participation under Article 257 and the IEBC, uh, these three issues really at the core of uh, an effort to democratize uh, power relations under the Kenyan constitution um, and to ensure that there is no concentration uh, of power in the office of the presidency and by extension also uh, in, in political uh, offices. So for example, and I think the, the clearest example of this is in the court's analysis of Article 257, um, which is amendment by popular initiative, uh, where the court, in fact, by a 7-0 majority, uh, holds that uh, this provision when read in its historical context was meant to provide an avenue uh, for the Kenyan people to uh, bring to public attention uh, issues in the constitution that might require rethinking and amendment. And that purpose would be defeated um, if this process was to be driven uh, by politicians, the president, uh, or other parliamentarians. Uh, and so the court really carefully scrutinized the entire knowledge going back to the handshake uh, and said that this is very clearly an executive driven process. Right. Um, now, the provision itself is silent on that. The provision itself doesn't drive the process. But the court interpreted that silence in a way so as to say that actually a provision meant to empower the people or give power to people cannot be then used to empower the presidency. So I think that, that that's why, and, and, and the same uh, uh, so same things apply to the basic structure doctrine and also to uh, the IABC. So I think that's why these three are particularly important. Okay. I mean, uh, just just to piggyback on your answer, you on, in your third part analysis, you, you talk about uh, the, the idea, at least the idea of a fourth branch, uh, which is called the, the IABC. And yeah. which can you elaborate uh, what are this fourth branch is and why it's very important for a yeah. democratic country like Kenya? Because you introduce this idea that uh, 
uh, for many, we talk about three branches of government, executive, legislature, and the judiciary. But yeah. you talk about yeah. the fourth branch, you even talk about the information commissions, IBC. Why, yeah. why, why is then in our case, IBC a very important uh, commission and institution uh, for Kenya's democracy? Yeah, so again, I mean, if you look at classical constitutional theory, you have three branches, executive, right. legislature, judiciary. Um, and both the executive and the legislature, in some sense, draw their power from popular, uh, from elections. Um, and the judiciary is the counter-majoritarian branch that checks those two when they, you know, when, when they transgress their limitations. But in the, over the last few years and even decades, there's been this understanding that this is insufficient to guarantee the thriving of a constitutional democracy. So you also need fourth branch institutions uh, that are also not you know, elected uh, and are independent from uh, the elected branches. Uh, the reason for this is twofold. One is that many rights that a constitution guarantees are not self-executing rights in that you need an institutional structure uh, to make sure that those rights are are actually effective and make sense to people's lives. The classic example is an election commission, because to have an election, you need to have an independent body that monitors the election, that declares the dates of the election, is responsible for constituency delimitation, and so on. Uh, it's the same thing goes with the information commission. It goes with for ombuds people, for watchdogs. South Africa has a public protector, and so on. So what these fourth branches do is that they function independent of the popularly elected offices, presidency, parliament, and so on, uh, and act as a check on the day-to-day -day functioning, and also to make those rights, like the right to vote, the right to information effective, on a day-to-day -day administrative basis, uh, in a way that courts can't, because courts can't oversee the implementation and the finer details on a day-to-day -day basis. The courts can adjudicate on disputes, and sometimes, of course, they can oversee implementation of their judgments, but they can't effectuate the right to information, the right to vote. Uh, data protection is also a big contemporary issue on that on that front. That's why bodies like the IABC are important, and in fact, if you look at um, Article 88 of the Kenyan Constitution, the IABC's role is, is really wide-ranging. It's, it's, it's to monitor referenda, elections, constituency delimitation, demarcation, and so on. Uh, and without these functions, uh, you obviously can't have free and fair elections, which of course is a big issue in Kenyan history, is my understanding. Um, and, and more than that, uh, it's, it's even more important in the IABC case, because democratic legitimacy flows from, from elections. And so the, the referee who has to monitor that process is particularly crucial and needs to be independent because if that is compromised, then everything else downstream is also compromised. That's what makes the IEBC a particularly important institution. And that's why the court's rulings on quorum, uh, on their needing to be a legal framework for the IEBC are, are so important. Right. I mean, and, and you, you mentioned in your analysis that uh... Yes, yes, the, 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 both the rulings have done a lot of pioneering work, you know, in terms of really yeah. interpreting the constitution and, and it'll go a long way. But for for, for countries like Kenya and um, parts of the developing South, right, where, uh, we, where our political elites are known to uh, over and over time to try and change the condition for their own benefit. Well, what, what are some of the, 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 missing, the missing points or areas that you feel that Kenyans need to also be start interrogating, having conversations around, and the courts being to even interpret them deeper so that we can really strengthen 
our constitution and really create and really infuse constitutionalism towards our, our democratic uh, spaces. So, so I wouldn't say there's uh, there's something missing. I'd say that there's some points that because the court wasn't dealing with them, it didn't yet rule on them. Okay. But future cases might might have to deal with them. Um, so I think that I think one example uh, I think is, is a very as a very Kenyan specific one uh, is Article Two Fifty Seven public participation. Mm -hmm. uh, because so what happened in, in in this case, as you know, was that this was the executive driven. Uh, uh, you know, the BBI was executive driven, and so the court kind of strikes it down, and the court says that uh, a process under Article Two Fifty Seven needs to be public driven and have public participation. Uh, but then the question, as as was raised in the hearing, and as some of the judges also acknowledge is that you can't really impose the burden of public of ensuring public participation upon an ordinary person that's a, an obligation on the state now if an ordinary person or a group of people want to initiate uh, an amendment process they don't have the resources to you know have this wide ranging you know public participation that is required you know under article 10 and so on um, and and so the court is aware of that and it sounds a few notes of caution but of course because that wasn't the issue before it it doesn't go deep into it but future cases then might actually have to deal with that so to balance the requirement of public participation on the one hand with the fact that 257 seeks to empower ordinary people to initiate an amendment process right. uh, will be an interesting future question i think i think leading on from that i think something that will be very important is that whenever you have an appeal to the people whether it is by political elites or by courts the risk is always there that within the people then you will have certain dominant voices who will exclude you know uh, mm -hmm. other voices and so in, in this case there is this very strong focus on public participation uh, and it, it draws from previous Kenyan cases that, in fact, we in India have often used to try and make the same case in India. So, you know, we often use Kenyan cases for public participation. Uh, but then, of course, that and that's a good thing. But then the future, I think, I think in future, there would have to be a little more uh, thought given to how you can ensure that in a public participation driven process, it's genuinely pluralistic and inclusive. And doesn't mean that the loudest voices ultimately still drive it. They're not politicians, but they're still like louder voices, right? So I think that's a, is something worth thinking about. Um, if indeed, and it seems to be the case, public participation is going to be um, a foundational value in these provisions going forward. Hmm. And and touching on public participation as well has been the last the High Court ruling and also the Court of Appeal ruling and yeah. also public debate around uh, Kenya. There's been this issue on of basic doctrine. Uh, but yeah. and 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 even even during the court of appeal, there were people saying that basically uh, it doesn't exist in Kenyan law. We can borrow uh, outside of outside of the the public and in, in, in many cases the political debate. Why is the idea of basic doctrine important to constitutions? Yeah, I think there are there are two or three the two or three reasons. Um, one is, and this is something that's that happened across the world, right. um, is that when politicians don't like the constraints that a constitution imposes on them. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they do a number of things to get around, around that. Uh, one of the things that they do is amend the constitution. Right. Uh, this was a big issue. In fact, in India, the reason why the basic structure doctrine was adopted by the courts in 1973 was that in 20 years after Indian independence, every single time there was an adverse court ruling, 
the Congress party, which was then enjoying a, major, a comfortable majority in, in the Indian parliament, would just amend the constitution and, and remove the basis of the court ruling. And finally, the court said, look, enough is enough. Uh, we are putting a stop to this. Uh, so what, they, what politicians do is, uh, when the amendment process is relatively you know, easy, uh, is that they just uh, they, they, they undermine the rule of law by just uh, getting around inconvenient judgments by changing the constitution. That's one, that's one thing. The second is that, uh, and this is something I, I, I draw from the arguments made by many of the respondents' counsel in the Court of Appeal, right. uh, is that uh, you, can, you can destroy a constitution in, in, in two ways. One, of course, is in a coup, in a, in a revolution, you just you know, kind of sweep away the old order and there's a new one. That, that's one way of doing it. Uh, but the other way is a more subtle way, which is an implied repeal, which means that you add to a constitution features that are so fundamentally incompatible mm -hmm. uh, with its its existing identity that right. effectively it's no longer the same constitution you know so you have the extreme example which is an example given by the judges in the court of appeal in their oral arguments is that tomorrow you just change the constitution to make it a making a theocracy or a one-party state you know like going back to the past right. uh, then that it's no longer the same constitution it's something else mm -hmm. um, and so i think it's important to have a kind of protection against against that uh, that kind of 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 implied repeal that comes from top down uh, and i think one really valuable contribution that the kenyan courts have made to, to global jurisprudence on this is that until now uh, the basic structure doctrine basically was that if you if you are altering the basic structure of the constitution changing it from to some other constitution then you, it's a, it's a complete bar you can't do it like it's just it's just out of question I think the, the, the Kenyan courts have done something very interesting and to me it, it makes logical sense. What they've said is yes, you can do it, but if you want to actually alter the constitution identity completely uh, and make it into effectively a new constitution, then you have to replicate the conditions under which the constitution was created. Because mm -hmm. what you're doing is effectively an act of refounding right. uh, and not amending. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can do it, but then you have to go through the entire four-step process that involved, that was involved in the framing of the 2010 constitution, that's public participation, civic education, uh, constitutional assembly debate, and, and a referendum. Uh, so, so you can still, so if the people want, then the people can still refound the constitution, uh, but the political elite cannot do it simply by, you know, uh, by having a big majority uh, and just ramrodding through massive amendments in that way. So I think that that's a very important uh, contribution that the Kenyan courts have made to, to global understanding of, of, of why the basic structure is important and, and what its elements are. Okay, right. I mean, in, in many cases, uh, Gautam, India and Kenya, I mean, we, 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 share, we share our similar colonial past and a lot of, you know, Jewish yeah. students is actually very the same. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, to move a conversation to a bit to, to a political question is that yeah. uh, in, in your view, uh, what, what, what have these uh, rulings done uh, to, to Kenya's judiciary uh, coming from a history where the judiciaries of colonial system was, were meant to be kangaroo courts? You know, they were, they were meant to, you know, really serve the interest of the previous the British, the British minority and then uh, post Post, post independence, you know, serve the interest of the uh, the black minority political class. What what does what does this ruling mean uh, as regards uh, statehood and nationalism for 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 Kenya's democracy? Yeah, no, I think first of all I appreciate the, the shared, you know, shared 
past that we have. I think I just recently saw a great Twitter thread on samosa on samosa in India. Yes. You know, I, like, <laughs> it was yeah. a wonderful thread. Uh, mm. But yeah, but to answer the question, I think I think it's it's really in, and again, so I'm, uh, now I my understanding, of course, is an outsider, so it's yes. going to be limited and there's many contextual nuances. I'm, I'm sure mm. I'll miss. But I think I think what's really important is that what you had here was uh, was, was two really politically powerful players mm-hmm. who were at opposite sides in the previous uh, in the previous disputed election that was set aside by by the courts, and they both have a long political history in, in Kenya, right? right. Uh, and they had both gotten together to uh, to try and push through the BBI, uh, and so you basically had. Uh, so it, it wasn't simply a case where, say, you know, an evenly balanced uh, political spectrum, uh, you have, you know, like uh, a politically contentious move, right. where the court, where the courts kind of adjudicating like a finely poised political dispute. Here it was uh, two two very influential figures coming together um, with their followings uh, and, and and uniting to push this through, which basically it effectively meant a large segment of the political establishment, um, you know, was, was behind this. Um, and in that context, for the court to say that you know two courts to say one after the other that, that no, you cannot do this. And in fact, to say it by significant majorities, I think um, it establishes the judicial independence in a really important way um, because what we often see in uh, in 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 constitutional courts, especially in post colonies, is that what courts will do is that they will play this kind of negotiation game with with the government where. Mm-hmm. Uh, where there's something that's really fundamental that the government wants, it's, it's in the integral to its agenda, the courts will green light that, uh, and that will give them the breathing space to maybe you know pass some progressive judgments on social rights, uh, you know. Uh, so so it will be like this constant like negotiation push and pull, uh, where the government is allowed to to have its core agenda you know uh, pushed through, and in mm-hmm. other marginal spaces the courts kind of you know uh, intervene. And I think that that um, what's really important here is that this was something that was really really clearly important to both. Uh, His, His Excellency President Kenyatta and, and the Honorable Raila Odinga, and, and the court stopped it. Uh, so, so I think that, um, of course, it, 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 the counter argument is that the court was posturing, you know, like this, like uh, excessive activism and so on. But if you kind of like bracket that that internal dispute, mm-hmm. I think for the rule of law, it's important that a project that had such firm political backing mm-hmm. uh, was set aside by the court because that really. He sends a very powerful uh, message that that the courts um, are in a position that if they genuinely think something is unconstitutional, uh, then they will not engage in this kind of uh, uh, you know negotiation, but will actually uh, say that it is unconstitutional and therefore has to be stopped. So I think that that sends a very important message, a, a very important public-facing message uh, to judiciaries, you know, I think around the world and. and and of course, within Kenya as well. Okay. My last question, Gautam, before I, before I let you go. I mean, I mean, as as we all know, of course, the political class won't uh, won't 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 take this defeat on their part lying lying around, and and a, a similar a similar situation happened in 2010 when we passed the constitution, whereby Kenyans passed the constitution, and uh, uh, for for the majority thought now this is over. We passed the constitution for for 30 years. Yeah. Now we can go doing its own business. But in the yeah. last uh, 11 years, we have seen, particularly the, the current regime, the Jubilee regime, yeah. we have seen blatant, uh, blatant, blatant 
blatant executive orders going against the constitution. We have seen uh, the commissions, the constitution are not, are not, are not, are not subscribing to the decrees of the constitution. So then what do we, I mean, as a constitutional lawyer, what do we need to start doing as Kenyans to make sure that uh, even the gains we have made with now the, the recent uh, Court of Appeal ruling, that, that not, not, not only do we cement them, but we also move forward. What are some of the things to start building the critical thinking to realize that our constitution is, 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 is progressive, but also we also guardrail it against, uh, uh, in, in a sense, a political class who will, of course, down the road, try to change it or try to do something again. What do we need to start doing as, 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 a, as a country? So, so I think I think that I, I was I was really struck when I watched the court of appeal hearings um, I, at the at the sophistication and at the, the nuance and and the sheer quality of arguments that the lawyers you know really brought to the table, um, and I was, I was really struck by how many of them were you know were young lawyers who were you know arguing for for half an hour one hour. Uh, and that rarely happens in India, uh, and and I was I thought that that uh, as long as you know this group of lawyers is, is around. At least as far as the court is concerned, you really have nothing to worry about because you have I think, an excellent set of, of counsel um, who, uh, who who will take these cases cases to court, uh, and you also have an excellent set of scholars. Uh, you know, I've I've really been following the work for a long time, and they've, they've taught me a lot. I know, like uh, Walter Sheng is someone whose whose work I, I read, I read, uh, you know, uh, and other scholars. Uh, so I think so I think all the ingredients are very much there, uh, and uh, and I've seen that you have groups like the Katiba Institute and, and so on, you know, right. who who take this to to the people and to social movements. So I, th I think I think it's all there. I just think that that ultimately what can succeed is is a, is a coalition of social movements. Uh, lawyers and, and scholars working together, sharing information, uh, you know, collaborating and ensuring that these kinds of cases come to court at the right time with the right strategy and with the stakeholders all being involved. And from what I've seen so far, it's all happening. So I think I think like uh, I, I'm really like um, I, I just love to see like uh, all, all this happening. I think it's great. So so I think that if that continues uh, on its trajectory, there will be like a, a strong. Uh, a set of of you know um, institutions and people who will be in a position to defend the Kenyan constitution and the gains made. Of course, it will be hard, but but it's all there. Like it's all there to do it. Okay, thanks, thanks, Mr. Gautam, for 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 your brief for sharing your insights here here at the Elephant, uh, and also for for also for your your numerous articles you've penned for us on on this legal matters. So thank you so much for your time. And thank you. It's been a great privilege to be follow, have followed this case from the High Court up and, and you know, it's, it's been wonderful to, to follow it and to engage with it.